This is the podcast for RUF at Wake Forest. RUF exists for the convinced and the unconvinced, the lost and the found, the burned and the bored, the cynical and the spiritual. Whoever you are and whatever your story, RUF exists for you. For more information, check out our Instagram at RUF Wake Forest. Now, here's today's teaching. So what we've been doing this semester as we're gathering the space, we've been, we've been reading through the gospel of Mark. Oh, also, we're live streaming on Instagram for the people who are abroad. So if there's a camera there, you can wave and say hi to all our friends who are abroad. Um, and because uh, they missed us and they wanted to be here with us, but they're not. They're in Europe and other places. Um, so um, we've been reading through the gospel of Mark together this semester. And as we've done that, we have been looking at Jesus and the way that he, um, he enters into the world and into the lives of people. And um, one of the things that we've seen as we looked at the Gospel of Mark is that um, pretty early on, uh, we begin to see the shadow of the cross. The design of Mark's Gospel is it's very short. It's only 16 chapters. And the cross, Jesus's death, um, is something that looms large over the entire book. And so as we've read, we've seen that, the way that it, it casts the shadow all the way back onto the first chapter. Um, so that's what we've seen as we looked at this together. And so um, we're going to do that now. We're actually going to look at Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. And this is um, in the, the slides. It's also um, in a Bible, if you have one of those, you want to follow along there. Um, this, is, this is God's word for us tonight. It's trustworthy and true, and he gives it to us in love. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion for we are many. And he begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him, that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And Jesus went away and began to, and the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. 
and everyone marveled. This is the word of the Lord. So I want you to remember with me um, your move-in day for college. First day you moved in. For some of you, this is easy, right? It's just a couple of weeks ago. For others of you, it might be a little harder. Um, You might not, can't believe that it was three years ago that you first moved in to your freshman dorm. For me, it was 19 years ago. Um, And I still remember walking into my dorm, carrying boxes, looking around the lobby at other guys. Uh, There's this guy playing guitar on the elevator, an elevator in our dorm. Um, There's a guy who was unpacking his Pokemon sheets, practicing his his trumpet in his room, move-in day. People do great things on move-in day. Um, There are guys who are already out fratting each other two hours into move-in day. Um, and walking around thinking to myself, is that person going to be my friend? Is that person going to be my friend? Um, sizing people up, trying to figure out how other people are sizing me up deep down, right? Just the desire to be accepted, to be loved, not rejected. And so these little clicks started to develop on my floor. We'd go get dinner together. Some of us had classes together. Some of us visited fraternities together, just trying to make friends and not be rejected. And a little different than the people you met on your first day of move-in, in Mark 5, we're introduced to a naked man who lives in a graveyard. He's covered in wounds. That's supposed to be funny, sort of. Um, I hope that guy wasn't on your floor. Um, he was, he's covered in wounds and scars because he cuts himself. He spends his days and nights yelling and screaming. People, presumably his friends and family, or maybe the local police, tried to chain him up. Um, maybe to keep him from hurting himself or hurting others, um, hurting the, well, those he loves, and they can't keep him chained. He has a superhuman strength, strength and breaks the chains. Um, and my guess is as weird as that is, this guy did not live or does not live on your floor. We don't get a lot of people who grew up in graveyards at Wake Forest. Um, but I bet that a lot of us live in fear of being sent to the tombs, being sent away to the graveyards. Um, Here's what I mean. I think, I think a lot of us, we, we just fear rejection. In our minds, we fear any rejection in our minds would be total rejection. So for some of you, that rejection you fear is not getting into the fraternity or sorority that you wanted. For others, it's that you live in Palmer or Piccolo. Um, or maybe it's the fear that your parents will send you to rehab or that um, you would have to transfer to a state school back home because you couldn't academ- cut it academically or even worse, you couldn't cut it socially. Maybe the tombs for you are eating alone in the pit. I mean, we do everything we can to avoid being like this man, alone and in the tombs. He terrifies the town. Uh, he terrifies us. And I'd say the primary way that we avoid being exiled to the tombs is by wearing armor and wearing masks. Here's what I mean. Um, armor. Armor protects us. Over the past five or ten years, you have been fashioning armor for yourselves to protect yourselves. Um, A former Wake student who was involved in RUF, when asked why she, this is a long time ago, why she picked Wake Forest, she actually never visited. She just saw pictures and said everyone looked like they were out of a J. Crew catalog, and she said, I want to go to there, and so she came to Wake Forest. Um, Think about how you and your friends get ready for class. Think about how you get ready for class. Think about how you get ready to go out. You armor up. Right? You armor up. You think, if I present myself in a particular way, I won't be hurt. Your makeup, your shoes, your clothes, your carefully chosen accessories. Maybe you only wear one particular brand or set of brands. Or maybe you don't care. What, you dress in such a way that says, hey, I don't care what I think about what I wear. But we all put on armor. It's like your protection against what's going to come at you. 
So why do we feel like we need to wear armor when we leave our houses in the morning? I had, I had coffee with a student a few years ago, and she told me over coffee, Wake Forest devours weakness. Wow. Um, if you are weak or you let your armor slip, you will be eaten alive. It's as true for the classroom as it is for the frat basement, both academically and socially. Wake Forest devours weakness. Um, the, the chief of police here, Regina Lawson, said a few years ago that Wake Forest has a small town culture. And what she meant by this is that everyone knows what you've done and you can't talk about what's been done to you. Like that's the nature of a small town. Like this is why you feel like you need to wear armor to protect yourselves in the fishbowl of Wake Forest. And you also feel like you need to wear masks. If armor is there to protect you, masks help you pretend that everything's okay. Um, this past weekend, we had parents' brunch, and Maddie Waltamas shared, um, which was wonderful. And she said that uh, Aryof was the first place that she was thanked for her vulnerability. I'm going to quote her. This is what she said. I got her permission. It's okay. This is what she said. She said, at first, I didn't understand why anyone would thank me for talking about such messy things like anxiety. But the Lord was disrupting the lie that I should be isolating myself when relying on his people will teach me to rely on him. And then through an Arya small group, she said she was transformed just because she had space to process. And that she could truly realize being close to Jesus is not about having it all together. She said, I felt incredibly messy and too much for everyone around me. So I put on a persona, a mask, even though it drained me. But ingrained in my memory was Ellis Kiefer, who's a former RUF staff, reminding me who Jesus is and what he has done, and that I was neither not enough nor not too much for him. Um, Maddie, your story is a gift to us. Thank you for sharing it with us. Jesus is beautiful in you. Um, a friend of mine, Richie Sessions, who's the RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt, uh, once told me a story about his sister-in-law, uh, who was a Disney princess. His sister-in-law played Belle, from uh, Beauty and the Beast at Disney World. And at Disney World, you can never come out of character. Uh, she's from Mississippi, but she had to speak without a Southern accent because Belle is from a small town in France. So she had to tell everyone that she was from a quiet village in France, just like Belle. Um, to even come out of character and be yourself is to commit an unpardonable Disney sin referred to as breaking the magic. If you break the magic, <laughs> you get fired swiftly. <laughs> Seriously, she had to be from France. She couldn't be from Mississippi. They actually, rumor has it that there are people whose job it is to try to get the characters to break character, like to go around and try to get them to slip out of their role um, because it's so important that they keep the magic. There's even a rumor that you can't die in a Disney park. I don't know if you've heard this. Um, apparently, they take the body outside of the park to pronounce you dead so as to not break the magic with something as crass as death. And like, I just, I share all this. I know this is crazy, but the reason I share this, that in a lot of ways, this, this, this resembles Wake Forest, a place that tells you, you need armor and you need a mask or you'll get eaten alive. And so, and so a lot of the time you walk around terrified of breaking the magic, terrified of taking off the armor or peering behind the mask because you might have not said it that explicitly, um, but you know from watching other people or maybe in your own life that Wake Forest devours weakness. Do you, ever, ever, do you ever wonder what would happen if you walked through campus as your real self? No armor, 
no mask, no liquid courage, um, what it would be like. Um, And this brings us back to the man at the tombs because he had no armor and he had no mask. And Mark tells us that this man was possessed by an evil spirit. So I just want to take a minute um, and name the elephant in the room with this. Like you may be thinking when you read this, like, John, we're modern people. It's 2021. Do you really expect us to believe that there are evil spirits in the world that can possess people? Um, And I'll say yes, that the Bible assumes the reality of demons and the devil. Um, A man named Andrew Del Banco, he's a scholar at Columbia University. He wrote a book in the 90s called The Death of Satan. And this is what he says in the book. He says, even though I'm a secular liberal, um, he says, the first line of the book, he says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. He says that in the West, we've gotten rid of the idea of a cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We just don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even use the word evil like that because it implies a value judgment or moral absolutes. So instead, we use medical terms. We call things dysfunctions and pathologies um, rather than using medical terminology or sorry, moral terminology of good and evil. And so he writes that as the 20th century went on, it got harder and harder to say that Holocaust and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. Um, are you all familiar with the movie Silence of the Lambs? Is that in your, imagine- your memory at all? So it was a book that was turned into a movie in the 90s, and it's the story of this serial killer, Hannibal Lecter, who's also a, a cannibal, and um, this young policewoman, Officer Starling, who's working his case. And so in the book, Del Blanco um, references this movie in the scene where Officer Starling goes to meet Hannibal Lecter in his cell for the first time. And she's looking at him and hearing what he's done, and she says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? What happened to him that he could be so cruel? And he hears her, and he begins to speak, and this is what he says. He says, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened and you can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? And Del Banco, quoting this in his book, says, modern people, the modern West, cannot answer this monster's question. Can you say that I'm evil? And he's right. He says that in the West today, we don't know how to make sense of the death, depth and pervasiveness of evil. But the Bible doesn't have this problem. The Bible says that evil has a source and that evil comes from the free will of two races of beings that God created. The free will of both angels and humans. Some of the angels uh, fell by exercising their free will and turning away from God. And these fallen angels became the devil and his demons, which are personal supernatural beings. Fallen angels, fallen humans. We turned and we fell And now we have evil in our hearts, deep, deep in our souls. And so this is what Christianity says. It says that psychological and sociological factors don't create evil. Yes, these factors can aggravate and shape our self-centeredness, our self-absorption, our self-delusion. But evil is in our hearts, all of us, and aggravated by the devil. That's what makes the world the way it is. Um, There is a devil and there are demons. You need to hear that. And I'm sure... Some of you have real trouble with that idea, believing that there's personal devil and personal demons. So I just want to suggest four things to you. These are from from Tim Keller. This is what he says that I think is really helpful. He says, if you struggle with believing about the devil, um, consider that perhaps you're being too simplistic. 
right? Wake students want to be sophisticated and nuanced, not crude and unsophisticated. Is it possible that perhaps by not realizing the multidimensionality and spiritual depth dimension to human evil, is it possible that you are being simplistic and naive? That it's not the people who believe in devil and demons that are naive, but it's you. Second, if you struggle with um, this idea or with uh, believing in a personal devil or personal demons, you might be culturally narrow. White Western people have a lot of trouble believing in the devil, but that's not true of most people in the world. Africa, Latin America, Asia, they have no trouble believing in spirits and demons and things like that, and they have wisdom too, don't they? Um, Are you really going to look down on all of that wisdom? Why not be open culturally to what other cultures tell you about this? Third, if you struggle with believing about the personal, a personal devil and personal demons, um, do you believe in God? If you say, yes, of course I believe in God, well then isn't it a little inconsistent if you believe in a good personal supernatural beings and not evil supernatural beings? Isn't that consistent? And fourth, if the Bible is true, if the Bible is right about this, and it is, you will not be allowed or you will not be able to understand, let alone defeat on your own, the darkness in your own heart, in your family, on this campus and in this world. It's beyond you. We are in over our heads if you're alone in this. It takes more than psychology and sociology to explain it. So here in this passage, Jesus confronts this demon, legion. And I want you to see what he does with this demon. First, he commands him. He clearly has authority over this evil army who lives in this man. A legion is uh, the largest unit for the Roman army. So it would have been 6,000 foot soldiers and 120 horsemen. So by the demon naming himself legion, it's, it's to give us this image of this powerful army of demons inside of this man. And Jesus commands this demon to leave this man. And then they have this dialogue where Jesus doesn't destroy the demons, but then lets them go possess another host, these pigs. Um, he commands him and then he directs him. So Jesus directs Legion into this huge herd of pigs, which runs down the steep slope into the sea and they drown themselves. Now this might bother you. You might be thinking, why would Jesus destroy the lives of these innocent pigs? Where's his compassion for the animals? Um, and if that's what you're thinking, here's the thing. Jesus is not displaying a lack of compassion here. He's actually properly directing his compassion. He is willing to sacrifice 2,000 pigs, as valuable as they were, to rescue this demon-possessed man. It's as if Jesus is saying here, there, this is a human being, a creature made in the image of God who's being destroyed day and night by these demons. Whatever it takes, I'm going to redeem this human being. So before we charge Jesus with a lack of compassion, we need to see that it was his compassion that drove him to destroy the pigs for the sake of this one human life. This is how valuable human life is to God. And I read this week, one commentator said, it's only in a culture of death where human life is denigrated that people value animals more than other people. And third, what Jesus does with this man is he gives him full assurance. After Jesus drives the demons from this man, how could he give him assurance? How could he uh, assure this man that the demons would never return, right? This man has been tormented for years, cutting himself, screaming day and night, living in tombs alone. 
How could this man be sure that the salvation that Jesus brought him would never be lost? There's only one way, and Jesus chose it, by letting the demons destroy those pigs. Jesus is saying as loudly and clearly as possible to this man, never again, never again, once you have life in me, you cannot lose it. I want you to imagine with me that you are one of Jesus' disciples here. So you're following him as he heals people, as he forgives sins, as he teaches with authority. So far, for most of the time you've been with him, you've been on foot. And then uh, you've been in and around the Sea of Galilee. And then the night before, you get in a boat with him. And um, he falls asleep in the boat. The storm rages. You wake him up. He calms the storm, terrifies you. And then in the calm of the storm, you hear these screams from the other shore. And Jesus says, that's where we're going. We're going towards the screams. Look at Jesus, how he responds to this man amongst the tombs. He doesn't run away from him, but he runs towards him. And he speaks to this man and to the demons with authority. And he casts out the demons that are torturing the man and he heals him. And then he sends the man home, dressed and in his right mind, and everyone marvels. Look at Jesus. Look at how he moves towards the brokenness, towards the sin, towards the pain, towards the torment. Um, He moves towards you. He moves towards your weakness and your hurt and your shame and your sin towards you. Friends, when we sin, when we're in torment, the very heart of Christ is drawn out to us. Um, there's a fantastic book that some of us are reading right now in RUF called Gentle and Lowly. And I've got a stack of copies on the, uh, over there. You're welcome to one if you want one. Um, and this book is about Jesus's heart for sufferers and sinners. And in one of the chapters, the author poses this question. He says, if Christ is perfectly holy, which he is, shouldn't he withdraw from sin? And here's the response he gives. The sins of those who belong to God open the floodgates of his heart of compassion for us. The dam breaks. It's not our loveliness that wins his love. It's our unloveliness. And that's what we see on full display here. It's only as you see this story as a mirror to your own sin and suffering that you can begin to see the heart of Jesus for you. So why do we wear armor? Why do we wear masks? because we're terrified of what's underneath. We're afraid that we'll become like this man, cutting and crying out, or because we're afraid that we're already there. Like we wear armor and masks because we're much more like this man than we care to admit. I mean, there's a, there is a spiritual reality to everything that we struggle with. You cower in shame because of what you did this weekend or because of what was done to you. You're racked with guilt because you looked at porn again and you feel helpless to stop. You're trying to control your life through what you put in or don't put in your body and how you look in the mirror is controlling you. Or you've just been on that treadmill of performance for so long that you're terrified to hit the stop button because of the fear of what you're really like when you're not achieving. And this passage is saying, look at Jesus. Look at him. Look at how he responds to you and to the spiritual forces that are at work behind the scenes. He runs straight towards you to take the torment, to take your sin, to take your, your shame into himself, to heal you. Jesus alone has the power to break the magic of Wake Forest. He alone can heal you and heal me of the torment that's beneath our armor and our masks. So here's the thing. The goal isn't to take off your mask and your armor and to be left naked. 
what happens in the story is that he clothes him. The goal is to be further clothed, not in some armor that you hobble together on your own, but to, with the clothes that Christ alone can give. And these true clothes are Christ himself who puts you in your right mind, healed and forgiven and restored. So how? How does Jesus do this? Well, throughout Mark's gospel, as he gives us these vignettes of Jesus's ministry, he points us, he's calling us to look at the bigger story. And at the climax of Mark's story, Jesus himself ends up naked, isolated, outside of the town among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he is torn apart on a cross by the standard Roman torture, his flesh torn to ribbons by the small stones and the Roman whip. And Mark is saying that is how the demons are dealt with. That's how the healing takes place. Jesus is coming to take the full force of evil onto himself to free those he loves. Here the demons are sent into the sea, but on the cross, Satan is cast into the pit of hell forever. So as I'm closing here, I want to end by asking you some questions. Where do you see yourself in this story tonight? Do you see yourself as the man amongst the tombs? Well, friends, if you see yourself there, know that there is healing for you in Christ. Do you see yourself amongst the pig herders, these Um, who are here because you've seen God at work in the lives of others and you're curious. If this is you, we're glad that you're here. Hope you keep coming back. Maybe in this story, you're like the people who've seen Jesus work and you're terrified and you want nothing to do with Jesus and we're glad that you're here too. And I hope that you take the time to investigate what it is about Jesus that disturbs you. What is it about his power and his love that unsettles you? Or maybe... In this story, um, you've been healed. Maybe Jesus has healed you, and like the man, he clothed you and restored your mind, and he has sent you here to go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Wherever you find yourself in the story tonight, know that in it is an invitation from the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story um, that you've preserved for us. And we thank you, uh, Jesus, that you move towards us, um, that you're not repelled away from us, but that you are attracted to the thing that disfigures us. Thank you that you made us in your image good and very good. And the sin and suffering that um, hurts us so deeply, uh, you move towards in love. Lord, I pray as my friends hear this tonight, um, Lord, would you help them to make sense of it and help make sense of their own lives in light of your life. Um, Thank you that you love us. Um, We pray in Jesus' name, amen.